Welcome to season four of the Sex Lab with Laura podcast. It's going to be a good one, people. It is. I can tell from the interviews I've done already. Very juicy. I've just been off for a few weeks um, conducting the first module of the school I launched this year, the Artemis School for Women's Sexual Wellness, which is offering these weekend modules um, with different focuses on women's health and sexuality, reproductive health and sexuality, as well as a full certification program to become a sex educator. And wow, um, this weekend or a couple weekends ago now uh, really exceeded my expectations. We had 15 women here in Venice that came from as far away as Costa Rica and all over the States um, to dive deep into this inquiry of of feminine or female sexuality. And we learned all about the anatomy of arousal and orgasm and chemistry and how our brains work in mindfulness and sexuality. And uh, we re-envisioned... kind of the cultural narrative that we've inherited about our sexuality and went way back to um, prehistory even to to see a new version of women's sexuality that we don't hear enough about, um, which leads me to this upcoming episode with Jimmy Bartz, who is an Episcopal priest, and we really got into God, sex, um, religion, intimacy, and he's super progressive um, and cool in his thinking. And um, yeah, and I, I asked him, I kind of waited till the very end of the episode, um, but I asked him about the goddess. And well, this is kind of a rabbit hole, but before we had more of these monotheistic male god-based religions, um, we had this long period of goddess worship on the planet. And um, yeah, so I got to ask Jimmy about that, and I'll let you listen to see what he said. Um, Okay, this weekend, I am in Telluride, Colorado, one of the most beautiful places on the planet for the Telluride Yoga Festival. I'm teaching there. This is marking a long tour um, of teaching since February, and we'll see what's next after this. I'm just going to chill out and enjoy summer for a bit. Um, Lastly, I just want to put out there that I am seeking a business partner and business manager, um, someone that's super kick-ass and passionate about business and growing business as we are expanding and it's time to bring on some more support. Um, So if if you're one of those people um, that loves business and believes in the mission of what I'm offering to the world, um, email me and I'll just send you some more info. Okay, enjoy the show. Ship. 
We are the Sex Lab rocket ship. Sex Lab rocket ship. So you can get pretty close to this guy. Um, Is there any like puh, puh, or Yes. Pee? Be careful of that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's sensitive. Um, so we can use any kind of language we want. Not that you're going to be cursing up a storm, I imagine, but maybe a little. And um, we're just conversational. We're just going to chat. Oh, I, lo I love the stuff you wrote. Great. Okay. So I am here with, I'm pretty sure, the coolest priest <laughs> on the planet. <laughs> I want to give a little background because, so I grew up Catholic, like in the Roman Catholic world, like mm -hmm. all up in there. And uh, so when I learned, because, you know, we're, we have friends in common, we're friends, and I've known you for years. And when, when I w someone was like, yeah, Jimmy the priest, I'm like, he's not a priest. He's not wearing robes. He's not wielding incense. He's married. Like, how is he a priest? It didn't. It didn't all line up for me. And then when, when I hung out with you and like, and went to your church, I was like, this is very different. And it really didn't line up for me. No, you. it really didn't. Yeah. So yeah, tell me a little bit about your journey and like how you represent as a priest. Yeah. So it might be different from your upbringing because I'm not a Roman Catholic priest. I'm an Episcopal priest. Mm -hmm. And there are some, some real differences there. There are some similarities on the outside um, that you might view in, in, a, in a traditional Episcopal congregation, but I no longer serve in a traditional Episcopal congregation. Um, that being said, you know, I am the Reverend Jimmy Bartz, and there are still people who from time to time call me Father Jimmy or Father Bartz, though I would prefer Jimmy. Mm -hmm. um, and I do have the robes, and I have the collar, and from time to time I have to put them on. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a part of being um, joined to a larger institution or the denomination that is the Episcopal Church. In fact, you know, just last weekend I was at an ordination for one of our our congregants was ordained to the diaconate on her way to being ordained priest, which is different from the Roman Catholic Church in the sense of you heard that I said on her way mm -hmm. to being ordained priest. We have um, female deacons and priests and bishops. Um, those are the only capacities in which someone's ordained in the Episcopal Church, at least so women are afforded the same um, positions that, that men are. It, now that you know, it, it is a relatively new thing within the last um, thirty or so years, um, moving from the diaconate to the priesthood to the episcopacy or to bishops. Um, but at present, I serve in a very eccentric Episcopal congregation that is called Thads. People oftentimes ask me, "What does Thads stand for?" Is it an acronym? No, it doesn't. It's not an acronym. It stands for Thaddeus, who was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, but there's no mention of Thaddeus within the context of Scripture. Um, so we sort of felt like we were free to dream up what this person might be, mm. li be like in the world. And then it was like there was also just like a little, uh, little flavor of like fight club. Like it's sort of like a secret, you know? <laughs> so I think there's like... Um, 
secret code. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, is our church edgy? No, but maybe a little for the for a church, I guess. How many priests like come on a sex podcast? You know? <laughs> yeah, I only know one of them. The so cool far. ones, right? 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 <laughs> yeah. So, as a priest, what you know? Yeah, why are you on a sex podcast? What made you say yes to the invitation? You know, it would be nice if I could say, like, to set the record straight. But, you know, uh-huh. I've been ordained long enough or I've been in ministry long enough to know that that doesn't really happen. Mm. Um, but it's nice to be able to speak freely uh, and address real life concerns that people have and and. I think human sexuality is such an important part of the way that we exist in the world. And for me, it is tied to our spirit or tied to our soul. It's it's the way that we express ourselves sexually, but also just as like sexual beings. I don't mean in the actual act of engaging in sexual intercourse, but it, as we express ourselves as sexual beings, for me, is very tied to uh, the spirit or how we um, co-create and collaborate with God creatively in the world. So to be able to come and talk about that freely and openly without sort of interruption or, or the interruption that oftentimes happens when you have these con- conversations like within the context of a religious community, Maybe you don't get an interruption of, of a person raising a hand or somebody stomping out or somebody clapping and cheering, yeah, we're finally saying this, but you get those like quiet, unconscious shame interruptions. And I'm just like, man, you know, maybe we could just have a piece where somebody could listen to this on their own or they could listen to it with a group of people. And, you know, if, it, if somebody does experience that shame trigger or something, it's, it's a, a little safer for mm. them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, they can kind of get into that. And if they can get into it, maybe they can get out of it. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're also a scholar and a writer and, um, you're active in, I don't know, I guess I'll let you put it in your own words, but I know you're out there kind of sharing your, your message or kind of this very progressive way of being engaged with God and religion. I mean, for me, God is, you know, God didn't create, but God is creating. Mm -hmm. Um, It's an activity that existed in the past, which is present now and which will continue in the future. But at that same time, Um, I have a past and I have a present and I'm not exactly certain of the future. So how do I um, manifest or incarnate the presence of God, which to me is love Mm -hmm. in the world? I mean, that would be the that would be the most accurate description that I could come up. If you said, like, what's one word for God? I would say love. It's love. Like agape kind of love like or. No, I think I'm comfortable with that singular English word of love because it is so comprehensive. Cool. Um, And I get the desire to separate uh, 
mm-hmm. aspects of love that that can be helpful for us as we unwind ourselves or as we look at relationship or we look at how we function in a relationship. But I like the singular word because it's it allows creativity and destruction. It allows serenity and trauma and turmoil. I mean, love is beautiful, but it's also not pretty. Um, so it allows for all the complexities and the humanness too. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I see that. So you're just spreading love on the planet. Like that's kind of your, your calling, your purpose. It's my intention. Your intention. Um, I don't know that I always do that. You know, I mean, I think as human beings, we don't always act out of our intentions, but um, I can set that intention. And, and I will say, you know, I have, I've made some progress, you know, <laughs> slow progress over, I turn 45 tomorrow. So it's like, you know, I look up at that. I'm like, okay, halfway to 90. I'll be lucky if I made it to 90. Have I made progress? Yeah, sure. You know, mm-hmm. would I have sat down at a at a sex podcast 10 years ago? Maybe I would have been more afraid mm. um, as I was being formed by the institution. But now I've, because of experience and interacting with people, um, have more a sense of my own inner authority and the way that I can operate more freely in the world and be myself, which, uh, you know, the heart... The heart of who I am as a priest, though I exercise my ministry in an eccentric way within the denomination, you know. But can but, you give an, like an example of what that means? Yeah, so you know, you, there's sort of like a uh, there's an institutional side to being a priest, which is you know you go through a a, a selection process, and then you go off to graduate school, and you're trained there, and you have a set of psychological evaluations hmm. and a set of interviews and it's a lengthy multi-year process and that culminates in a ritual um, where people read prayers and you make certain commitments to living life in a certain way. So there's that institutional side of things that I've, I've made those iterations in my life, but then there's the... M- the more day-to-day side of things. Like, what does a priest do? Well, a priest is a blesser, you know, not a curser. Mm. So, like, how can I live my life as a blesser? You know, so if 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 I wake up and, and my child is having, one of my children is having a, a tough day, how do I engage her with empathy and compassion, with blessing rather than cursing? And Um, if we talk about whether I've been able to do that, I would say like, sometimes I'm successful at that and other times I'm not. Um, and then I have other interrupting spiritual practices that allow me to keep functioning like self-compassion, like, well, okay. Um, you weren't your best self there, but that's all right. Nobody is his or her best self every day. You know, so it's just that, how do you occupy the world in a thoughtful, spiritual way with love being the intention with blessing being the way that I provide that love and with creativity being um, the the sort of landscape. Like you can be as creative as you want to, 
Um, so whether I'm, you know, blessing somebody with uh, listening ears or whether I'm trying to connect with my wife um, in the bedroom in a certain way, I want to be a blesser, you know, in, in all things. Um, I don't want to be self-centered or inappropriately self-centered or directive. I want to be um, one who manifests relationship and connection and, and is trying to build intimacy mm. in, in each moment, in each interaction that I have, in each sermon that I prepare, in each article that I might write, you know, set love as my intention there. Beautiful. I, as I'm sitting here listening to you, I'm like, oh my God, I always want to blame religion and, you know, not blame, but I have my own judgments of like, it's so easy to make these sweeping statements like, oh, we're all fucked up because of religion and that always just creates this distorted relationship and shame around sexuality for people. And, and I mean, it's great that I'm, and I know you, I know that's not true for you, but I'm getting like this deeper understanding because clearly you don't, you're not the only religious leader that feels this way. Um, so I'm just calling out kind of my own judgments around that and, and just how easy it is to um, make these sweeping statements about certain things culturally. Um, so thank you for bringing nuance. No, you're welcome. I appreciate welcome. that. I, I, do yeah. th- I would say, though, I do think it's okay. It's okay for us to think critically mm-hmm. about how religion is practiced, especially, especially in this day and age. Is that a fair thing to say? Like, well, I do think it is. His- historically, right now, we experience this rise of fundamentalism. Mm-hmm which um, is a very complicating iteration of religious practice. And it, whether it's Christian fundamentalism or um, Jewish fundamentalism or Islamic fundamentalism, um, just the principles of fundamentalism are just so complicating for people. So I think having, you know, do we throw everything out? No, probably, but we don't throw other institutions like politics or higher education out either. Though we might look at them critically and say like, wow, like this doesn't line up with my understanding of value or character or morality or whatever term we wanna hang on the thing, those things in life that mean things to us. By that, I mean to say the things that provide meaning to us. So I think it's okay for us to think critically. I get that sort of progressive move to be like, I don't want to be judgmental. I don't want to be judgmental either. I don't want to be unfairly judgmental. Mm -hmm. But I do want to be a critical thinker Mm -hmm. in all things and say like, wow, this is where, you know, this is where the arm of the church that I occupy has done harm. Mm. How might I not participate in that? How might I seek to heal the wounds or the trauma that has been caused? And then in other areas, like, oh, like that might be problematic for me, but that's not my problem. I mean, that's sort of the phrase that I've picked up over time, sort of adopted from some principles of of the Al-Anon community of like, 
that might be problematic for me, but that's not my problem. Mm. You know, I can't, I can't really do anything about that. I can't change that other than the way that I can change it in my life and, and, and the in and around the people that animate me or I interact with or relate to. Hmm. So what do you think is, if we can look at this critically, like what, where are the problems still today in how religion handles or does not handle human sexuality? This very important part of relationship. I think in, in a failure to adapt to an understanding of, to a social, historical, critical understanding of ancient texts. So we, you know, if, if, if you just look at something like um, the prohibition of sexual intercourse uh, before marriage, um, the way that that gets interpreted in this day and age is that somewhat, you know, if it's being interpreted in that fundamentalist or literalist way, it would be that uh, if someone has sex before they are married, they are a bad person. Um, I think all of us who are sexual beings have some sense and have been sexual beings over time have some sense that um, we have been our best sexual selves and we have not been our best sexual selves. But like lines in the sand like that um, are really problematic for our culture. That it they uh, fertilize this very rigid binary thinking that heaps shame um, on men and women as they struggle to understand in in adolescence who they are. You know, as they're really seeking to forge their identity for the first era of adulthood, you know, to enter into that era with a heaping dose of shame is so destructive and traumatic to people. Um, And it seems some of these things were, you know, maybe when there was a a broader, stronger kind of Christian-based culture in the United States, um, there's a lot of these beliefs that were really adopted and like really integrated and even though a lot of people maybe aren't practicing christians anymore but they're still aligned with some of these ideas and it it becomes almost insidious it's like um silently expressed in different ways it's not even necessarily like you're at a church and there's a priest saying you will be a bad person but it's it's um yeah, it's like implicated that these these messages have run really deep, and I think there's a process of unwinding a lot of that and, and looking at it critically. Like, where well, where does the shame come from? Mm-hmm. And maybe not all from religion, but there's a lot of messaging that came through religion. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, I think really the the problem there is people, not religion. Mm-hmm. Um, we 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 people tend to be rigid thinkers or we think for our own and we think along our own lines. But when you, when you look at that 
just the American evolution of like inheriting Puritanism and what's that done? You know, we look at, you know, the writings of Nathaniel Hawthorne and just like the devastation of a scarlet letter on a community and the, the hypocrisy that that story um, shines light upon. I mean, it's, it's, it's a brilliant critique of the failures of Puritanism in America. But if we really go backwards, you know, go, go way, way back, we're like, well, why, why would there be a rule in a book, in a text about not having intercourse until you were married? Well, there people were getting married much younger then, and the emphasis of that narrative of that story that where that rule has its genesis is a preservation of a people, um, Israel. You know, um, how do you preserve a community? You preserve a community by making sure that that community is procreative. Mm. So there's a practical reason for it. Like, well, why would it say in that book that you shouldn't masturbate? And it's really not women should masturbate. It's really men should masturbate because it says, like, don't spill your seed on the ground. It doesn't say masturbate. Well, it's about the preservation of the seed. It's about, like, the, the work of our community is to preserve the people is to keep going forward. So when you so a lot of those rules are just kind of they're just outdated. You know, they're they're outdated rules that don't really make a whole lot of sense in this day and age until maybe they would again if if ever. Uh, but they're very similar to you know, we can look at the dietary codes that come from religious texts, you know, like you know, why why in both Judaism and Islam is pork forbidden? It's forbidden because the pig is a dirty animal. The pig is actually a dangerous animal. To You have to be careful about how you curate and, and slaughter a pig in order to consume the meat safely. Well, why, you know, why... Why a prohibition on on shellfish? You know, what does God have against shrimp or lobster <laughs> or crab? You know, nothing. This is written for people who live in the desert. And if you eat lobster in the desert, you run the risk of becoming very, very ill. Yeah. So there's a lot of like, there's a lot of practical wisdom to a, to this narrative that we've forgotten or we don't have a sense of anymore. We don't feel the inner authority to look back and go like, oh, well, that kind of made sense then. It doesn't really make sense now. You know, and and, and, and we wouldn't just pick, pick on the Hebrew scriptures. The Christian scriptures are full of those prohibitions too where, you know, there's a line from Paul that says, you know, like um, women should not speak in church. Well, really? Yeah, not in my church, dude. You know, like, in fact, maybe women should speak up more. I mean, we have a dialogue after the teaching. Maybe women should speak up more because the person who does most of the preaching and teaching is a man, me. You know, and so maybe we need to hear that feminine side of things more from the congregation. Um, so there's just, you know... 
They're parts of the story that people hold on to and they use them as clubs um, for people. And and to me, it just doesn't it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And it doesn't match up with the meta narrative of these religious texts, which is for me, love. Mm -hmm. So my ears peaked when you said inner authority, Mm -hmm. because I know a lot of this is about belong, like a lot, you know, the structure of religion, of belonging to a congregation, belonging to a community, identifying um, is about belonging. And so that's why some of these things, you know, you have a, a, a preacher who's preaching from the Bible as if it's literal here and now, um, yeah, people will adopt that because that's how you belong to that community. Mm -hmm. So there's certainly, and it's not just Christianity, in a lot of places where it's like to belong, you're expected to kind of go along with, you know, follow. And um, inner authority is not necessarily encouraged or cultivated. So I got excited to hear you say that. Um, and I'd love to hear how, why you think that's important or, or, and how perhaps you cultivate that in your community. So I think for me, that becomes important going back to the story and not you know, the, the mythological side of the story of being made in the image of God, you know, in the sense of if that's true, I need to be open to the way that Laura or Mike or Dave, the way that God expresses God's self in the form of Laura or Cindy or Mike or Dave or Will or Toby or Jade or jazz you know these so my expression is is uh each of us has i I like to use the sort of mosaic image of we're all one tile Mm. and if you look carefully at a mosaic tile by tile it doesn't make a whole lot of sense um if one is missing the overall the overall image is less than what it would be. Um, So each tile is important, but it is important in the context of the whole, you know, the image that it presents. So that inner authority might be the importance of the the singular tile itself. Um, But we have to have both views. and we have to have a sense of the tiles that are around us and how we interact with those people, how we, how they make our light shine brighter and how we make their light shine brighter or the reverse, how we, you know, perhaps dominate um, the other with our strongly held views or our failure to listen or to be open. You know, I have no desire to be a part of a faith that requires people to be, you know, on the passive side, submissive, on the active side, dominated by a certain set of rules. It doesn't seem consistent to me with the identity of God, Mm. you know, that that we wouldn't have a voice and power and agency 
and a creative compunction. Um, it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. So what do you think is the church's role, or maybe just as an individual leader of a congregation, your role in this piece around sex and intimacy and relationship, which is like really one of the fundamentals of living our lives, right? It is mm -hmm. about, there is a piece that it is about procreation, but it, we also know it's much deeper than that and more complex than that. So what it, yeah, what is your role or what do you see the church's role or the priest's role? I think in, um, you know, it's about the ability of the community to build intimacy into the culture. And when I say intimacy, I don't just mean sexual intimacy, but intimacy, our ability to connect and relate empathetically, compassionately, passionately, creatively with those around us, those who are alike and those who are not alike. So that that's more that's sort of the more universal side of things. Practically speaking, I think of healing shame and trauma that people have um, experienced, whether it is at the hands of uncaring people or at the hands of an uncaring institution um, to address that directly. Mm -hmm. um, I also think, so from my own experience, you know, we, we can talk about the goods of, the, you know, sort of the Christian goods or of sexuality, what makes up Christian ethics, but that you mentioned that procreative side of things. So I myself have male infertility. So I, I am a sexual being who misses out to some degree on the normal procreative side of sex. So that's a missing piece. So when people, you know, when when politicians and religious leaders, you know, write an article that they plop up on a blog that says like sex is meant for the procreation of children, I step back from that and think, well, is that true? Because if that's true, then I should be a non-sexual being. And sex has brought a lot of meaning and value into my life, a lot of love into my life. Ah, that must not be true. That's one of the goods of human sexuality. Um, the others f traditionally being um, unitive, um, how we connect to another, and, and the other that is described as biological, or really what biological means is just like feels good, pleasure. You know? Really? Wow, yeah. So that's in... Like where that's like something you learn in priest school, in grad school is like the, <laughs> yeah. the where because my impression, right, is that relig for religion, it's all about procreation. Yeah. And pleasure is just like we can't even talk about pleasure. Like that's not even important. We don't go there. So this is some of us go there. This is news yes. and exciting news. That's thirty-three and a third percent as far. <laughs> and for me, it's fifty. Uh huh. Right, because uh -huh. I'm missing one of the three. Yeah. So sometimes and, it's more than fifty. Yeah. Good. And then sometimes the unitive function <laughs> yeah. is ninety-nine. Yeah. 
you know? I yeah. mean, it just, it depends. Yeah. And, and they all interrelate. They, they, they can all be there together. Um, did your personal experience kind of influence your thinking around this at all? Or did you just sort of get that these were the three goods and they all make sense? Uh, both and. Yeah. Both and. So I learned those things from a book and from a professor while in graduate school. You know, what does Christian ethics, traditional Christian ethics, say about human sexuality? Well, it says these are the three goods. And then I measured my life up against them at each stage of development and said, like, oh, yeah, these kind of make sense, you know. And which one's more important? Um, well, I can tell you the reproductive one was really important for a while. And there was a lot of pain and a lot of trauma around that, um, around not being able to conceive a child, you know, not being able to give that gift to my wife and then have to do it in this like really pretty awkward way, you know, just for, for the whole like diagnosis around infertility is challenging for people it's it's challenging for women in a different way than it is for men for men it's um maybe a little bit easier but a little humiliating you know you 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 go in and and you you know you masturbate in a urologist's office with like people like whisper that hey there's some magazines in the fourth drawer and like just like put the cup over here and and I, I had the, I had a really great experience around this and this is kind of funny telling this sort of sad humiliating story but on this you kind of have to do it twice they have to make sure like really like nothing there's nothing there really you got to do this again. So after the second time, I was meeting with um, two other friends of mine who were also priests. Um, I was in Austin at the time, serving in a congregation in Austin, and was just getting to know this one priest. And um, we met in a chapel, which is kind of funny, too. And I was sitting in the chapel, and he came in. The other priest was running a little bit late. And I think he noticed that something was up with me. And he's like, hey, man, you seem a little down. And I was just like, yeah, I'm down. Um, I just kind of had a humiliating morning and he's like, what do you, you know, what's going on? What's going on? And I decided to make myself a little vulnerable to him. And I said, well, here's what's going on. You know, like, I ah, just, you know, uh, we're getting diagnosed with infertility. Um, it's a painful process. It looks like I'm the problem, you know, and I had to go in for the second time. And this guy's about 10 years older than me and like one of my dearest friends now, um, even to this day put his arm around me kind of like I was in a, like a bit of a headlock and rubbed my head and said like, oh man, I've had to jack off in a million doctor's offices. Mm. And I didn't know that all three of his children were adopted and that they went through this rugged infertility process. And it was just such a gift. It was such that moment of vulnerability yeah. that came from a traumatic experience, but also the practice, you know, of making myself vulnerable of like, I should share the story. There's nothing to be ashamed of. I'm not ashamed of my infertility. Do I wish that it wasn't there? Yeah. Has it given me amazing gifts otherwise? Has, has God been present in my life through that process? Yeah. Um, so we conceived my son with donor insemination 
remember how when we first started, I said tomorrow's my birthday, I turned 45. So my first child who is not has no genetic connection to me whatsoever was born on my birthday. Wow. Like so I you know, I'm like, hey, thanks God. Like I you know, so maybe a psychologist says, Well, you're assigning something to that. Well, maybe I am. You know, but that seems like a gift from God for me. Mm-hmm. You know, of like, wow, to have Jas born on my birthday. And then, you know, the other way that we got our child was through international adoption, which was amazing. Mm. You know, I'm like you know, white guy from Texas with this Chinese, now Chinese American daughter. And there is a part of my identity that's Chinese. Hmm. So is that procreative? Yes, but not in a traditional way. Hmm. You know, there was no intercourse involved in that procreation, but I can tell you it was procreative. Yeah, it's, Sexual and like what I would call sexual energy, creative energy to me, that's like all one and the same. It's just the it's life force, God, whatever you want to call it. It's like the creative force of the universe that we're participating in. And it comes through in all different ways. Yeah. 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 Cool. So, okay, this is backing up now. That was a very beautiful sharing. Thank you. And I feel weird almost backing up, but I am going to back up. No, we need to and, do the, like, um, ask the priest stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, that's like... yeah. Um, so why, if we have these three goods, and one is unitive, which is so beautiful and um, sacred, like this idea of connecting sexually or intimately and one is biological which can translate to pleasures of the body which that sounds like to me biology right Mm -hmm. then where did these two pieces go missing from what i feel like is the dominant the dominant voice from religious or you know maybe it's the extreme voice that we pay the most attention to why is it all about procreation because it's all about procreation in the culture. Mm. I mean, I think you mm. know, there's that pressure uh, to get together and have a baby. Mm. I mean, how many people do we know that are just on that conveyor belt of life of like, hey, it's time. Mm-hmm. You know, how many of us have had family members look at us like, you know, over their glasses, like, are you, when, when is it, are you guys going to have a baby? You know Mm -hmm. what? I mean, there's just, there's so much momentum in the culture Hmm. to have a kid Hmm. and to have a family and to, so that may be something that I wanted, but it's not what everyone wants, you know, but if it, if it is the thing that the majority wants, then it tends to dominate the thinking of the culture and so I think those other areas atrophy and then other areas of the culture contribute to that atrophy so so what I see is you know many of my colleagues think that the church sets the trends for the culture but in fact the church typically in my estimation is usually 15 to 10 years behind um, the way that the the culture adjusts. And right now, 
you know, right now, what are we what are we experiencing in the culture? We're experiencing the dark side of autonomy, hmm. of radical autonomy, is disconnectedness, an atrophy of intimacy, and atro- so so we can talk about the unitive function, we can talk about it, and maybe we're even starving for it. But are we starving for it because we just don't even know how to do it? You know, Harvard Harvard University did a study a number of years ago about trying to find data on what contributing factors there were for a person being in the top quarter of his or her class at Harvard University. And they could only find one characteristic in common, and that was that that individual who is in the top quarter of his or her class at Harvard University had uh, the majority of their dinners during the week, so let's say four out of seven, I think it was more like 3.8 out of seven meals around a table. They had family dinner. Mm. Family dinner was the determining factor for the top quarter. Hmm. And we're like, well, how can that be? Well, that can be because the table is elementary school for human interaction. What do we know about couples who are struggling in their relationships when they adopt a practice of family dinner? We know they either reconcile or they split up very quickly, (laughs) much more quickly than most other couples. Because you can't eat across from another person day in and day out and not relate to them. Mm-hmm. So fast forward 2015, LA, where we're all eating by ourselves, looking at our three and a half to now maybe 4.5, if you have the new iPhone, <laughs> inch screen. Yeah. And we wonder why we're not experiencing the unit of function of sex more. We're wondering why we're starving for it, but we're not getting it. We're wondering why maybe um, we're overemphasizing the pleasure side. There's a good side to the pleasure. There's also a not good side, just like there's a good side to the unitive function and there's not so good side. You know, we don't want to create that codependence. We don't want to lose the individual mm. in that moment. Um, so that it's so it's what's the bad side of pleasure? What's the bad side of pleasure? Mm-hmm. Self-centeredness, mm-hmm. disconnectedness. It's mm-hmm. all about me. Mm-hmm. Why aren't you pleasuring me more? You're not giving me what I need. What about what we need? What about serving the other? You know, is there, does pleasure come from serving the other? You know, so it's, I mean, that's the dark side of pleasure that it, it overtakes us. And, you know, somebody said, well, well, oh, it was, it was such a, great comment that if um, and I think it could go with money too if if pleasure is the thing that we're seeking rather than a byproduct of our life we will never have enough but if it's the if it's meaning that we're seeking and pleasure is a byproduct of that meaning then we will have enough mm. but it's if it and the same thing could be said for money right if I'm just like I just want to make money 
I want money to be the principal thing in my life. We will never have enough. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. You know, mm-hmm. to quote that Rockefeller quote. Um, so I think I think that's the issue mm-hmm. there with pleasure. Pleasure is is one one side of the of the die, you know, but not the only side. Mm-hmm. For me. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. So, what? shit I had a question anyways we'll move on um what do you think what would you want to see change in like culture we can call it sex ed or just culture like what would bring more balance because I guess what I was hearing is like or or what I was hearing seeing in my mind is like there's this there's in a way this like oversexed kind of like emphasis on like really almost the very primal procreative aspects of sex like the things that I see in in the media to me like there's nothing unitive about it it's you know usually images of one very young woman oversexed um, or a young man um, half naked or whatever and really those images are not based in pleasure like they don't really show pleasure something like really base right so yeah how can we in in perhaps through religion and community like how do we start to move into a place where we're yeah rejoining the three goods like really having this full spectrum experience with intimacy and sexuality I think open forum, you know, really communicating about things in an open way, having a sense of where we might be experiencing repression in our own life, having a posture, a listening posture, um, training ourselves around shame, helping both adolescents and adults adopt um, some shame resilience practices. As you already know, I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown. I think her work is so important. Um, Brene has been so articulate in saying what I believe the heart of the gospel says. She, She talks about the power of vulnerability you know, and in in traditional Christian language, we grab from the the Christian scriptures the way that we'd say it is power is made perfect in weakness. Um, I think those two things um, sit side by side very comfortably. You know, those two. I think they are different ways of articulating the same thing. So I think vulnerability within the context of a community of relative safety. I'm careful to say relative safety because some risk is involved. I mean, there's a risk in the practice of sex itself, right? We, we make ourselves naked in front of our partner. Um, and that's a part of the creation story about how how vulnerable making that moment is. Mm. You know, there's a moment in Genesis where they, you know, 
man and woman realize each is naked mm-hmm. and that's a you know so i so i think that goes back to a um a vulnerable place you know and maybe some of us have um memories of our early sexual experiences where that was a barrier you know like can you shut those lights off or or maybe we even um in midlife feel more vulnerable as our bodies have changed and are not you know um as as fit and 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 unrealistically beautiful as as they used to be um so I think so. So I, I, all, all that to be said, um, some risk has to be undertaken. So when I say safe or secure, I mean relatively safe or secure. The expectation is that we're going to take some risk when we talk about this, mm-hmm. and we might feel foolish. We might touch upon some trauma that moves us, that that brings pain back, um, and that that is to be said. That's more for the the regular old person. I'm not really giving advice about how someone who has um, some post-trauma stress around um, past abuse or assault or anything like that. I think in in that kind of forum, the progress would be slower and even safer for a person mm-hmm. um, to begin to investigate um, what it means to be a more, more fully expressive person, a more um, fully alive and healed sexual being, um, to be what what we might call a wounded healer, you know, someone who is would never can't can can never forego or leave behind the scar that is there, but can be nevertheless restored to health and power and inner authority um, through some sort of healing process, broadly conceived, whether that's therapeutic or spiritual or in the the sanctity, sacredness of a trusted relationship, however. You know, there, I think there are a lot of different modalities to help people heal and maybe some are better than others. And on a podcast, it's kind of hard to say which one to use. Mm-hmm. But I think it would be irresponsible to fail to acknowledge that there is a certain constituency of people, probably much larger than many people imagine, who have real trauma and real post-trauma stress from that trauma mm-hmm. that inhibits the unit of function, mm-hmm. you know, and gets in the way of that. So how do we responsibly heal that very carefully and very slowly, you know? Mm-hmm. It can't be under the under the new rules of our get-everything-done-quick culture. Totally. You know? It just has to yeah. be with patience and love and compassion and empathy and care and nurture. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for acknowledging that. I think that that piece is super important. I think, you know, I actually think we all have traumas on different levels. We living in this culture, we all have been exposed to sexual trauma. And, you know, we hear a lot about 
women being sexually traumatized, which I'm not by any means taking away from that. And I think more, like I think every woman has experienced that, whether it's directly through her or someone very close to her. Um, But men too. Men are not escaping this. And, And if men are often what we would say the violators um that's because they're wounded they're not doing that as a whole person as a fully expressed person or they've been formed in a community a culture of perpetrators right you know i can remember as an adolescent growing up and and you know when you're a guy and you grow up you know i grew up in texas which is a different mindset from california but i think California still has its negative gender <laughs> struggles, but the, you know, when I got to a certain age where I was like, man, I can't believe like so and so's dad just said that shit. And part of that, probably my awareness from that came from growing up in a household, in a single parent household with a feminine parent. So I think most many of my other male friends were not shocked by that behavior because they were exposed to it much earlier Mm. than I was. But it was just like, wow, like just that whole, I mean, I don't think we should blame everything on religion or frats or whatever, because those are just really easy targets. Mm -hmm. But um, really looking carefully about gender difference and sensitivity and areas where there is no gender difference and you know but I mean does the fact that you know if you and I went to a job interview one hour apart that I'd be offered a dollar and you'd be offered 70 cents play itself out in the world of human sexuality Mm -hmm. you better fucking believe it does Mm -hmm. sister Mm -hmm. That's fucked up, man. Like, we got to fix that. Mm -hmm. Or we got to do the best we can to fix it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, to use those religious terms, like we've got to repent of the stuff that we can't fix because, geez, you know, it it is affecting our culture. You know, I, I I have two kids, a boy and a girl, and, and, I I don't I don't have the typical experience that many do because my son is developmentally disabled and and autistic and 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 will you know never express himself like um, people do in the norm, but you know I know for my nine year old daughter you know Cindy and I have been deep in it we've been deep in it with her for years you know and I'm you know. I kind of giggle to myself sometimes and feel like a little bit uncomfortable when, you know, it's 8, 17, 13 minutes before bedtime and I'm propped up on the bed and she's got her puppy and her bear and we're reading the body book and we're talking about vulva and we're talking, you know, <laughs> and, you know, do I have that moment where I step out of outside of myself and say like, wow, this is weird. Yeah, I do. (laughs) But I also have that moment where I'm like, way to fucking go, Jimmy and Cindy. Mm -hmm. Like, this is good that you're like, and and, and all the other supporting stuff that comes alongside that. You know, Mm -hmm. we cannot just 
deliver our kids sex education. We have to deliver our kids um, an integrated human experience Mm. that helps them cultivate that inner authority and express it well Mm -hmm. um, and express it clearly. Because in my mind, um, it's pretty easy for us to sit down with a diagram. Totally. You know, and go like, this goes here, this goes there. What's that look like? What do you got any questions about this? But what's much harder is how does someone have the inner authority to say yes or no, or maybe, or I'm not sure. How does a person have the inner authority to say like, I don't want to ask, you know, my mom or my dad about that, but my mom and my dad have put these people in my life and I can't ask them, you know? So it's like, for me, when we talk about sex education and human sexuality within the context of a religious community, it's much more than just the mechanics. The mechanics are included, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that, just including the mechanics, is just like it helps the grown-ups get over their own shame. Yeah. You know, of like, yeah, talk about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's informational. It's important. Um, we don't want un, unwanted pregnancy or... You know. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, what you're describing is what I would call true comprehensive sex education. And that word's tricky because it's tossed around and there's so many things that are being called comprehensive that I don't think are. But yeah, yeah these relating skills, because that's ultimately what we're talking about here is how do we relate to people? How do we use our voice? How are we empowered in our relationships? Um and also loving and connected. And these are all skills that are cultivated that have not been, that our parents haven't been very good at. Like, so yes, maybe in very recent generations, like we're cultivating that more. And gosh, I'm excited to see like, you know, your nine-year-old daughter, what the world looks like when she's 40, Um, because I think people will have more of these intimacy skills. But yeah, we take all of that relating stuff for granted. And it's just like um, we're on the relationship escalator, like you talked about before. It's like, oh, we meet, we date, we move in, we get married, we have a baby, because those are the steps. Mm -hmm. Because that's just what we do. Right. And so what if we were fully engaged, right, through the whole process? And I think our, our sexuality is an important part of that beyond the physical, biological function of our sexuality. Mm-hmm. It's present. Mm-hmm. And I feel like what I've heard from you, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like you think really to be a fully expressed, whole, healed person in the world, the sex piece has to be aligned and integrated as well Mm -hmm. how do we relate sexually express sexually yeah i think there are yes i do i i do that's accurate i think there are outliers there are unicorns who can for the sake of the community live a different life and the community can learn from that so what am i talking about 
celibacy. Mm-hmm. I think somebody could make that choice. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that we could learn from their experience if they, I don't know how good it is for a person just to be celibate and not share with the culture at large the experience of celibacy or having some way of sharing it that that honors and respects who they are. Um, so I think there's something that can be learned from the not, mm-hmm. you know? Um, totally. And, and there's people that rule, choose, that not. identify as asexual yeah. and more power to them. Um, maybe I'll have someone like that on at some point because I would want still want to engage them in the conversation. Well, sexuality or sexual energy or like you're still relating to that and that's still present inside of you um even if you know to me sex is not just intercourse like there's so much more to it so yeah yeah. intercourse is one of the practices of being a sexual being right Mm -hmm. i mean it's like one of the skills, one of the mm-hmm. things that you do to express that part of your identity, but just one of the things. Mm-hmm. I mean, so is holding hands or so is, you know, maybe shooting in kind text. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, you know, in this day and age, there's just so many ways, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe one of those ways is being self-reflective, mm-hmm. you know, and stopping yourself from feeling that shame. Or, you know, I mean, there's it's just comprehensive. Yeah. It's it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one day at a time. Yeah. yeah one day at a time. All right. I want to ask you, let's see. I want to ask you one more quick thing that may be like totally opening a can of worms. Um, but I've been really into in recent years studying like the pre-patriarchal God Christian times mm-hmm. of the goddess. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the world maybe looked like at that time. And I'm just curious, like, if you've studied, if that's ever been part of your studies or anything you're aware of or, yeah. Not part of my formal, like, theological education, but maybe part of my um, work as being a pastor in the city of Los Angeles 2015. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's... Um, It's not fair to say that it's trendy. It's fair to say that it's resurging. You know, yeah. that there is a sense of the feminine side of God being ignored so long that God has become not as powerful as God might be if God were more complete. Hmm. Um, so what does that look like in my circles? I'm a Christian, I'm a Trinitarian, so that looks like many of us adopting the female pronoun for the Spirit. Hmm. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Father, Son, She. Hmm. So you, you will hear many of us in more politically, socially progressive, intellectually progressive communities feeling that it's not just important to use that pronoun, but that it is descriptive. Um, 
Is that? Yeah, yeah. I was just curious if you've engaged with that, if you've considered it, if you've, you know, read any of these stories and, you know. I mean, the thing is for me, and I, you know, I should probably, maybe I should have said this at the outset. Um, I picked a narrative. Like, I just picked a narrative. It's not that I believe that, like, you know, my Jewish friends and my Buddhist friends and my Hindu friends and my Islamic friends don't get it. Mm-hmm. It just means that I picked a narrative that made sense to me, mm-hmm. which is the Christian narrative. Is it perfect? Not to me. No narrative is perfect, but it's the one that kind of fits the culture in which I have found myself. And I still find it to be a very powerful description of the identity, the work and person of God in the world. Um, but there are some missing things historically from that. And one of the glaring missing pieces is the feminine expression of God. There are biblical references to that. You know, it, within the Hebrew scriptures, God is described as, as a hen um, bringing her brood, that, that God's people, us, are the chicks that come under the hen's wings that that's how God cares for us, that sort of protective, securing, um, maternal protection. So that's there. It's just not the one that we go to. Mm -hmm. And it's not the one that is used more often. You know, it's father, 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 father. And that is a struggle for me Mm. um, because I grew up in a fatherless home. So that's always been a barrier for me where people are like, Father, and I'm like, God. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the issue. Is it easier for me that now that I'm a father myself? No, (laughs) it's not. Well, I would argue that that's probably a good thing because it's like you're not ego identifying with something much bigger, you know. Yeah, that's and the probably individual. why it creeps me out when people call me Father Jimmy. Yeah. You know, it's just like, no, I'm not your dad. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm not your dad, and I'm not your daddy either. <laughs> you know, those are really complicated things that people do assign to clergy. You oh, know? yeah. I mean, it's like a little freaky. Yeah. Yeah, the projections yeah. that you get. Yeah, yeah, that could be a whole other podcast, I'm sure. I mean, we're all subject. Yeah. I, I'm subject to that big time doing the work of... Yeah, sexuality in the world. So, yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, right. You must be. Yeah. Look at Laura. Yeah. Freewheeling. Yeah. 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 We've even joked about that a little bit. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. For yeah. sure. For sure. Um, well, and been vulnerable to each other about mm, that, too, of like, hey, you know, maybe, maybe not so much. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. Mm-hmm. Not so much. Mm-hmm. That's not. Mm-hmm. Let's not joke about that anymore. Let's have a deeper mm-hmm. conversation mm-hmm. before we do mm-hmm. to make sure we're all on the same page here. Mm-hmm. That's not harmful. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Yeah, because yeah, you, you can't, it is fun to joke about. And also um, there, there can be stinging thing like painful things within the joking if there's not that understanding yeah Yeah, for sure yeah and And the freedom to express that yeah both the authority to to name it and say it and the ability of the other Mm. to listen to To it it. it. Mm -hmm. Mm. um where can people find your writings and and everything because you've been writing a lot haven't you 
I have, I mean, you can find most of my writing on thads, T-H-A-D-S dot org. That is my church website. Ironically, thads.com is a swinger site. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah. So you're we .org? Tried. We're .org. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> They'd be like, if wow, yeah. This... Laura, you can go to either one. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> Check out both. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if you want, you know, my take on things. And then, I, you know, I have a couple articles that are out there. And, um, well, and locals might want to come check out your church because it's awesome that you guys have like a rocking band we didn't even talk about the music but yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all there it's all there on the website yeah you can find us cool. and i'm working on a book uh-huh. about um a third of the way through a book on the spirituality of risk cool um, and i hope to be finished with that by october that's sort of my timeline but we'll see great is this your yeah. first book it is my first book. Congratulations. Thank you. And you're going to help me get Brene Brown on here. Brene right? Brown will be out here on <laughs> September 24th. At Thad's? At Thad's at the Broad stage. Okay. So, um, yeah, she'll be back. Okay. Good yeah. for people to know that, too. Yeah. And so if you Brene's don't know website. who Brene Brown is, just go Google her right now. Right <laughs> yeah. now. Like Brene with a B mm-hmm. on the front of it. Yeah, she's an amazing person and a great friend and, and just a, a, a really bright mind in this world mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. 